Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me. In this podcast, we are exploring the theater and dance world across Canada and asking Japanese Canadian artists about how they've come to make their art and the place we have in our greater community. Today, I am so lucky and thankful to be chatting with Ben Camino, an artist out of Montreal who works in so many different artistic fields and has such a wide range of artistic practices that, well, you'll hear soon enough. If you're ready now, find your seats within the theater of the mind. Take a deep breath. We feel that pre-show excitement together. And finally, lights up on Ben Camino. Uh, my name is Benjamin Camino, and these are my stories from the stage. Please, for a moment, close your eyes. Take a nice breath in through the nose. Long, help, and exhale through the mouth. And continue breathing with eyes closed. And I want you to imagine for a moment your body lying in a room that is dark. And I want you to imagine your body levitating in that room to feel your body lift and become weightless, floating in darkness, exhaling again. I want you to imagine that this body begins to melt and dissipate into the space around it so that you become a part of that room, that the matter that entangles your body touches all the space around it. I want you to ask yourself, what is this feeling? What is this sensation of nothingness? This soft levitation outward? That's it. <laughs> wow, lovely. So in this uh, floating ethereal space, we begin our conversation. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Uh, you're welcome, Kogi. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Tell me a little bit about this, I mean, meditative state that you've brought us within. <laughs> yeah, I think I wanted to start off from the same place. Uh, mm. I think when I try to work in dance, I'm always trying to, or I'm trying to always access a, a, a certain state within the spectator and with the performers, but with the spectator of, of difference from, from whatever their, their normal day would be. I've been thinking a lot about nothingness and, and, uh, and levitation and gravity. Uh, so I wanted to imagine a little uh, improvisation for, for everyone. <laughs> I mean, so many questions are springing up, but let's start uh, for our audience here. Uh, tell us a bit more about your dance practice. Uh, what are you passionate about in sharing physical works? Yeah, uh, I consider myself a dancer and a dance maker. Uh, I'm from Toronto. I grew up there, but now I live in Montreal. And I, I separate really distinctly in my, for myself. I'm, I'm very much a dancer for, for other people. And then I also make dances. And often those dances are very different from the dances I dance in. As I like to be sort of agile, I like to think of myself as a very agile dancer. Dancers are agile. <laughs> and I, the dances I try to make I'm inspired greatly by philosophy, uh, thinking about 
thought and thinking about knowledge and how it uh, comes to be and how it's transmitted and, and disseminated or how it becomes in the first place. So I only have really three dances and they're all, they're all very quote unquote site specific or conceptual in their philosophy. And they're very distinct from each other. And I think what I'm trying to do is, is to always try to open up this question of, of, of what and why and, and the where and how. Uh, so when I think about philosophy, you know, I think about uh, the great writers, I think about books, uh, you know, I've got a shelf to my left here that has a few different philosophy books. But then can you tell me about um, the connection between like philosophic ideas and then presenting them through the body in, in often a nonverbal way? Mm-hmm. I had a really early fascination with reading philosophy as a child as a kid I started reading John Berger's ways of seeing because my dad was a painter and that kind of opened me somehow to, to some other more theoretical works and I, I fell in love with Giorgio Gombin really early and then I had some radical days reading like Slavoj Žižek and and Deleuze and wait how how early are we talking were you like a five-year-old reading these <laughs> well I started I probably started reading philosophy around 13 I remember okay, getting cool. that book and that really uh, just started to show me that there's uh, like, I'd only ever read like stories, I guess, or novels. And I, I realized that the, the word could be this place or in these books could be this place for thinking outside and thinking, thinking about thought. I was dancing at the time. And I think my whole career or my whole life, I've sensed this intrinsic marriage between philosophy and art, that they're sort of two sides of a coin inseparable they have different consequences they have different mediums and matters they have different ethical responsibilities i think philosophy has different consequences and and responsibilities to it than art but they ha- they come from this place of of under of asking why and how um the world is as such and and what matters and what what comes to matter from mattering dance proposed to write those questions in the body, in the body and space, whereas philosophy thought to sit and use a pen. It was, it's always been really, I don't know no other way of making dance than to, than to think about a concept and then to, to figure out how to articulate that concept through quote unquote dancing. I'm using square, scare quotes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's a really, and then also that's why I have to divorce my work as a dance maker from my work as a dancer because dance, also uh, enjoys a lot more freedom than than just being conceptual that we can also dance and just feel that sweat and that passionate intimacy with others and just do it for no reason and for for its its own sake and so whereas philosophy certainly has responsibilities to to where it is and how dance enjoys a bit of freedom for it it can be just for itself too and that's why i dance for others it's it's Mm. so much beautiful I, I was given this thought from Ruth Little the the dance dramaturg that dance is our greatest expression against entropy mm. and how how our world you know it from birth we we begin the process of entropy of slowly degrading and breaking down and the practice of dance is this like using energy and like yeah that upward ideal and and I, yeah motion so I always loved that. 
I love that too. That's beautiful. However, like I have nothing against entropy. <laughs> Dance, I think, can also be an, a, an engagement with why entropy and how entropy and beauty of entropy. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I've actually been thinking a lot about entropy because I've been studying gravity recently. And, and a grand consequence of ent entropy is that at one point, billions and billions and billions of years from now, the universe will be dissipated onto nothing. Like literal, not, not the no thing, but this sort of emptiness, mm. a radical emptiness. Mm. So, and I'm, I would love to see that. So, <laughs> so I would love, I'd love entropy in a way. <laughs> well, that's a good, yeah. Connection with entropy. Dig it. Um, <laughs> now, now you spoke about as a 13 year old reading these grand ideas. And, and I, when I was 13, I was lucky if I started reading Harry Potter at that point. Um, <laughs> but, but you do have, um, both of your parents are artists. Yeah. And how has that really impacted your, your artistic growth? Yeah, amazingly and destructively, like being an artist is hard. And I think my parents, God bless them for it, like they uh, romanticized it as like this beautiful experience of, of chosen poverty and, and joyful, festive, like wine drinking, late nights, no sleep, working on art, being broke, grinding. And, uh, and I've lived that way for so long now. And it, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's very difficult <laughs> way of living this very little security. I trapped myself at a young age thinking because I wanted to be an artist all my life I think likely because of my parents and there's regret tied to that you know I, I could have also been a lawyer <laughs> I could be rich I think <laughs> would you give the same romanticization that your parents have given to either uh, younger artists or or like your niece um yes of course yes uh, like for my niece, I'm watching my brother just had a child last year. and They're one year old now. And their name is Mars. And I'm going to show them all the art I can. I like uh, my fondest memories. My dad at the age of, I think, 12 or he took us to, Europe, to me to Europe first time and walking around these cathedrals with him and these uh, art galleries. I remember being so bored points of course boredom is natural but I remember also being so like broken by by it at, at such a young age too like at, I remember this sense of like goosebumps and, and just go walking into the Sistine Chapel and getting goosebumps yeah. that's the that's the feeling I look for now and everything do I do teach dance often and I, I, I it's really important for me to to, to impress even younger students at like high school level, I always say, this is a really hard life and you've trained to be a dancer and you're kind of scarred with that for the rest of your life. You're going to carry that forever. <laughs> you don't need to do it to be a dancer. And you really, you really need to want this because there's a lot you won't have to choose it. And um, I wish I had known that. And one of your mm. three questions was what advice could I have given to my 20 year old self? It's like, you think a bit more critically about this, uh, <laughs> this as a choice, because the choice to be a dancer is a choice not to be something else. And, uh, and it's a not an easy life. Mm, I guess on. no life is easy though. Come on. That's true. You kind of, you got to pick your poison a bit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, an informed decision is, is always appreciated. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. 
Now, I want to unpack a little bit when you spoke about this trip to Europe and the certain works that I love that you use the word broke you instead of, you know, moved or impacted. You use the word broke and you came, you came, you made this gesture of your hand to your chest. Can you tell me about this gesture and about the idea of brokenness by art? Oh, there's three things there immediately. I think it's also married that that sentiment is married to my nostalgia for that moment of touching one of the sculptures in Rodin's garden or seeing the Sistine Chapel or the Mona Lisa or, or just the canal in Venice. But it was also, I think a huge part of it is that it was with my dad and my dad's getting so old now and I'm having to take care of them now. And I also just miss that time of being cared for by my fam by my parents in this way that mm. will never come again. And I'm actually so happy that that's, that's linked, that my memory has linked my first touches to like art and, my, and a sense of great care and love from, from the outside. And, but to talk about brokenness is a separate thing. I think I use that term intentionally because or my, in my artistic practice, um, I, I think about brokenness as a, as a, I think about brokenness often and as sort of a baseline for uh, building other conceptual foundations that I have to start with the treaties that things are broken before I can build a, a sound concept of work. And to be broken is to be, is a, is a normal state, although varying degrees of brokenness. And then, I don't know, I'm, I'm also, going through a time of, of self-criticality and reassessment. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm holding on to old concepts and I'm not sure if they're okay anymore, but I used to think that to be broken was to be, um, to be moving and to be moving forward. And I wanted to break myself and I wanted to break the world and I wanted to break others. And I think I've, I've actually done a lot of harm in my career too because of this careless um, ambition to feel that break. And um, I think we talked, we started this conversation by, by talking about the responsibilities of art. And I, I wasn't sure yet of those responsibilities. I was more on the side of its freedoms. And I, I recognize, I wanna recognize now and for anybody listening to this podcast that we can do a lot of harm as artists, we can do a lot of harm as artists but i still think yeah for me brokenness is a is a baseline for existence i mean the image that comes up is the idea of the uh the broken japanese pottery that's that's oh, mended yeah. with gold yeah um <laughs> does that resonate with you yeah of course yeah um i mean that yeah wow so that i want to love that analogy but i think filling the crack with gold in order to in, to continue using it as a as an object and also loving it and cherishing it and almost renewing it and also improving it and it, like when you fill it with gold you also increase its value but i think it's a dangerous concept to think of in terms of art sometimes because the cracks that need to be filled cannot be filled with gold we don't have that resource. We don't have we don't have enough gold to fill all the cracks. Mm -hmm, so if we mm -hmm. start setting the standard, like it must be filled with gold in order to be used or or kept, that it, it also 
it, there's a precarious uh, projection there that if a crack is not filled with gold, what happens? Is it thrown out? Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. So now if we're using, if the metaphor of the, the cup is the metaphor of Ben Camino, what <laughs> is the, what is the artistic goal that does fill you that isn't the resource of wealth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm very, I'm, I'm very um, invested in uh, um, the work of Bracha Ettinger uh, or an, an Etagerian uh, psychoanalysis. I go to those teachings and I think that my broken chips cannot be filled. I think it's also, it comes back to this idea of entropy that are, we're, we're broken and we are, and we expand outward with entropy and we are not filled, but we are always entangled with each other, with the world, with, with otherness. And, and uh, so we're filled by our entanglements. So my answer to you is that I would rather keep the shards of the bowl in my garden. <laughs> Ooh, good one. Uh, good answer. But I, but I not, but I love that practice of Japanese ceramics. It's really easy for me to cast off that analogy as some sort of capitalist moniker of like, you need the gold to fill the cup in order for it. But it, I think there's much more subtlety and nuance mm. there. And, and I would love to study Japanese pottery. <laughs> I really dig that. Mm -hmm. But to now shift a little bit, I, I wonder if you could speak about, as we speak about Japanese pottery and our both of our surface le level understandings of it, um, <laughs> I wonder how has your lived experience as a Japanese Canadian come into contact with your experience as an artist? <sighs> That's such a tangly question. Um... I'm a just gotta third... I just gotta fill the cracks of the uh, <laughs> of the conversation. <laughs> I'm a third gen Japanese Canadian, so my grandparents immigrated before the war and were interned. And then after internment in New Denver, they moved huh? to Toronto and became gardeners and uh, dry cleaners. And my grandfather died really early, and but I remember his funeral at the Buddhist temple on Bathurst Street. I can still smell the incense. Hmm. That's my only memory of my grandfather. Wow. Um, but my grandmother didn't talk at all about uh, much, especially like uh, uh, like Japanese-ness. <laughs> and so, and my father didn't speak Japanese. And so I, I grew up like white. Hmm. And I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners and I'm sure a lot of the other people on this will feel this strange dislocation with one's identity as like, or, or when you, when you experience racism growing up, um, just feeling like completely like, what, what are you, you're calling me what? I'm like, white. what are you talking about? <laughs> mm. So just feeling completely dislocated from my Japanese life until, until I started studying judo. Judo was this way of me touching my roots in a way. I started judo when I was like 10 my uncle Toki taught, but I never got to study with him because he could be fell ill when I started studying. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, a continuous desire to connect to my Japanese heritage, but having no idea how to do it or why to do it or where to do it or not even feeling Japanese ever. Mm. 
I even went to Japan. My dad had a job in Japan working in Kobe and he brought the whole family out. He used his whole salary to bring the family out, like 10 people living in this small three bedroom in Kobe for a month. And I remember getting off the plane and looking around and being like, what the, what the heck is going on here? Like all these Japanese people, no one's white. At one hand feeling so uh, messed up and, and like what, but then in, on the other hand feeling so calm and being like, wow, I actually feel like completely surrounded by like people who look like me for the first time ever in my life. That was a strange feeling, but yeah. Yeah. Judo in terms of connecting my artistic practice to my Japanese heritage, I'm very inspired by, by the works of, uh, of uh, Min Tanaka, uh, a Buto artist and, and my work has been called Buto-esque in cases, but I'm not formally trained in Buto. And, but I, I adore everything Japanese <laughs> from no, th- I love, I, I, although being completely divorced growing up from my Japanese heritage, I think my work is very Japanese mm. because I, I do this compartmentalization of, of, ma- of different materials and they have certain utilities and they do certain things and they they and if they're not doing those things then why are they here they're not here i wanted to touch base on this idea that i mean similar to how you described it in your experience that for the first at least 20 years of my life i really tried to be white and and that was you know that was a home base of who i was and at the same time recognizing that despite my best efforts, I wasn't. And I was never fully of that landscape. And that's resonated in a few conversations that one of the experiences of being Japanese Canadian is not feeling Japanese despite our best efforts. Mm -hmm. And I find that such an interesting through line that how, how Japanese is Japanese enough Mm-hmm. to feel it and to be it. And I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of roots and reasons why that was, I mean, planned uh, in a very specific way to, to feel made to be part of the melting pot without being able to be fully within it, mm-hmm. um, which is a really, yeah. I mean, our, artistically full idea of having these combining ideas that can't fully align it, it's just so weird now that like I, I like I very improvised that opening dance I put in square quotes and this it was a dance of like trying to melt one's body onto nothingness and it's it's just so strange that now we're talking about this mythology of Japanese culture being like wanting to disappear into into this its surroundings mm. I, I didn't plan that at all but Okay. It also supports my, 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 my hypothesis that I'm a very Japanese <laughs> artist. <laughs> um, another thing that has passed down through my family um, is this idea. It was, it was really rooted in my dad and then kind of passed on forward in certain ways. But being Japanese meant that you had to work twice as hard to get half as far. Mm-hmm. And looking through some of your work Ben like you do everything you are a writer <laughs> you are a dancer you are a director dramaturg you are a sound artist you're working twice as hard here 
Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I I consider it more that I'm a dancer who has different ways of articulating their thoughts about dance. And I, I think I'm part of a movement of artists and, and theoreticians. Like it's in the recent decade where like intersectional research in universities is becoming more prominent. I'm part of a movement of artists who who have very intermedium desires to work that were like the dancer is also dancing when they when they bring the microphone out into the world uh, or I write I always mm. preface all my writings as this is a dance I'm always I'm, that's a really intentional thing for me because I'm not a writer no 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 <laughs> and my relief is to say that I'm trying to dance in writing so uh, I'm, I'm really interested by this idea of, of dancing the music that you create because a couple of your pieces and some of the work you're working on now is I don't know about ethereal but soundscape for sure uh, you have a piece that's uh, that's essentially a, um, a soundscape happening, like in the classic happenings of the of past mm-hmm. artistic world, and and so tell me a little bit about dancing sound. Yeah, um, I was doing a master's in in dance and choreography, and I was thinking about uh, dislocations and how to uh, dislocate the aim of a practice to uh, somewhere else. And I'm, I'm, you know, like this classic fetish for the unknown that we carry as artists dangerously, I think. Mm-hmm. So my idea, I was studying the works of Paulino Oliveros, uh, a sound artist from New York who, had, who actually recently passed away at the time of this research. This idea of the, the semitone, I, I was trained as a singer. I wanted to ask singers to sing, try to sing uh, a composition where they're always trying to sing a semitone away from each other. And it's, if you've ever tried to sing in a choir, to hold the semitonal interval with another singer live is very challenging. So that you always want to slip into some sort of classical Western harmony or of unison or a third or a fifth. So I wanted that people to hold semitones, a constant field of dissonance. And the choreography is very small. It's in the vocal cords of the dancers. That, that's the, how the, the tiny location of choreographic interest and so the dance actually was us having to move in this field of noise and while producing the noise. So if you watch the video, there's these people just moving around trying to listen. But yeah, the, the, the initial idea was how to dislocate the choreographic motor of a dance. So instead of like move your right arm, move your left arm, move your butt, this is, this is the choreographic motor there is like a prescription of movements. Well, what if the motor was elsewhere? What if the motor was a song inside the throat? where would the dance where would the dance then become tell us a little bit about uh i mean i i love the idea of motors within works and identifying whether it's the heartbeat or the thing that goes Mm -hmm. and i I love how you're speaking about non-traditional methods of motors how did you find that path and and what about non-traditional motors becomes an exciting pursuit yeah, like I think it comes from my study of philosophy and philosophic method, like of of t- taking apart meticulously an idea as a, as a as an act of care and criticism to that idea. So whenever like whenever I watch any dance as a dance maker, I, th- I think all dancers do this. Like our question inside our mind, behind our eyes, as we watch any dance in the theater, was why are they dancing? Why, why, why are you dancing right now? And not, not to like, and not to project that there must be an answer to that question, 
but we are asking why is this dance right now where is it coming from and you know and that's why i say you don't need to answer that question so stuff like so you think you can dance um stuff that happens in like competitions for studios that dance is important and great and but doesn't really answer that question for me and mm -hmm. so my my language of a motor or choreographic motor is my kind of semantic way of always addressing that question um, where is the motor here? Where, where is the? I think another colleague that I, I came up with, Estelle Vogrig, she she would always talk about uh, this ball. What is our ball? What is our gravity mm. uh, in this work? What's pulling us to work? Where are we being pulled and why? Uh, I think I'm iterating that method of hers. The ball of gravity. I love that. <laughs> you spoke earlier. Is one of your balls of gravity, um, you use the words, a dangerous fetish of the unknown yeah that was my ball for a decade of my work for sure and it's only now that i'm reckoning with it, its consequences and with how to move forward i think i remember actually even when i was 13 years old reading philosophy for the first time that that philosophy was this ticket to get on the train to get out and then dance became that ticket to get out and that there is this there is this elsewhere beyond beyond mm. that exists and that it's our obligation as artists to get there i fetishized the unknown in my early career into my now career whatever that where i am i am and i don't think i cared enough for how i got there so I'm confused whether the problem is how I tried to get to the unknown, but I'm also questioning whether the pursuit of the unknown as a, as a general value or as a, or as a hegemonic value is irresponsible, that there's so much work to be done here. My artists, activist friends are constantly reminding me that there's so much work to be done here. And yet when I sleep at night, I want to become like a star that burns out and I, I don't know what's right anymore. I really am at a time of great um, existential crises, as they say. I, I don't I don't know what's right anymore. I think the world doesn't know is has known or many people in this world have known for a long time that the world isn't right. And I I've known conceptually that the world isn't right, but I haven't realized. It took me long to realize that my work as an artist, yeah, can cause harm, and more so, was my pursuit also problem a problem in the first place. I, I regret not becoming a doctor, you know? I think I could have done more good in the world as a doctor. I could be working and look at me trying to get out. <laughs> Your ticket out. Yeah. No, I, I, I had a piece 2016, 17, somewhere in there. It was this exploration of uh, toxic masculinity and the patriarchy and how it manifested in me. And it was the golden penis. <laughs> and I had this like I want to make the safe un unsafe in order to to crack open I mean there's our there's our pottery image again to crack open this issue and and lay it bare as best I can and so in the messaging and in the before you buy a ticket before you whatever donate or get into the space I tried to send out that message that there's going to be some problematic imagery and and ideas and I'm still wrestling with if that was an additive gesture to the conversation. I have to believe it was. I think I believe it was. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I believe it was. Like you seem like a good person. Um, like, yeah, like materials on stage, being staged, the staging of material is you're staging it. Mm. You're putting this on stage for it to be seen, to be thought about, to be undertaken, to be carried mm. by others. Mm. That, that's and that's our responsibility i think as dancers is to to reckon the fact that the work we're putting up is carried by everyone mm. eventually somehow. and i don't know i'm so messed up these days with with what's right and what's wrong i love i mean i love this idea of your ticket out and artistically infused with the tibetan buddhism idea that yes there is this ethereal otherness but there's also this pragmatic realism and that if we can't hold both at the same time then we're doing both a bit of a disservice well i just got goosebumps because <laughs> yeah when i complain about not knowing what i'm responsible for i'm responsible for myself and for for trying to hold up those things that i i think are right i think as an artist in this in, you've noted that I, i'm quite intersectional with my work uh, and I've noted for myself that I want to be this agile person who can move between worlds. There's a very big danger there that I've seen in my life that I'm trying to deal with of being becoming a positional to the point where you're never really anywhere mm. at all. Mm. And the work you do in those places that you quickly leave uh, is for naught and you become a waste on the world. At one point when I was touring a lot, all I'm doing is like burning fuel, flying to these theaters, not meeting anyone, dancing this thing, feeling weird about it and going home and lying on the couch. And like, what, what are we doing? Well, what am I doing? Who am I helping? Who is that helping at all? I mean, I should have learned my lesson then when I, when I stopped that kind of work, but I, it still took me another um, long time to, to, to wake up to the fact that we need to also choose what material we stage and that material that we that we are choosing to stage must, must I, I can't finish that sentence yet and i wish i could you know beautiful question hanging in the air there <laughs> holy smokes with all this <laughs> kind of conceptual <laughs> beliefs that you've lived through let's go back to this idea of advice and what advice would you give the 13 year old self who's just digging into philosophy and who wants to be an artist, what would you offer that version of you? I would have asked that person to write more down. Hmm. Uh, I kept journals. I was so bad. I would do this thing where I'd buy a journal, write three sentences and then lose it. Always as my 13. And I think I journaled more so because I, it was a romantic idea of the world and less so because I was good at it. But now I write regularly and I, I wish I'd written more down when I was younger. And then, yeah, the advice I'd give my 20 year old self is to be more careful. Mm. Knowing that that 20 year old cavalierist attitude has led you to who you are now. Yeah, I, I, I love where, who I am now, but I regret uh, the people I've hurt. That's it. I just regret the people I hurt. I regret hurting the people I hurt, rather. Hmm. How, how would you caution younger artists to bring greater care 
uh, to those around them? As artists or as people? Because as people, I certainly can't answer that question yet. But as an artist, I think I can. Yeah, then absolutely. Yeah, as an artist, to make the artistic work process and life uh, more safe. Um, yeah, to, a, to an early career artist right now, to somebody starting out as a dancer, trying to make dance, I would tell them that they're so valuable and it is so important for them to be here and that um, it is a very difficult uh, ecology to feel value and worth and, and this seenness. Um, and that even if you're not being seen, you are still valuable as an artist. And that I would urge them to have patience with themselves and their work. And, and to make especially time, to give the time for things to grow and to lead them where they will and to not try to point everything anywhere. And then when you think you have something you want to stage, wait, wait, and, and, and just look at it a bit more and ask, uh, I, I, I project this question, you don't have to ask it, but I always ask this question is why, why are you dancing? Not that you need an answer, but that you need to ask that question. Benjamin Camino, why are you dancing? Ah, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> and this uncertainty of which I'm dancing now is, is exactly what I want to be dancing right now. Mm. So. Cool. Um, <laughs> let's imagine now, let's project and have the have the the gumption what piece of advice would you give yourself as a senior artist 10 20 30 years down the road what piece of advice would you value listening mm. back as if you're reading the the young journals again knowing that it's going to be ineloquent but delightful what would you offer your older self <sighs> um i would say to myself in 30 years, that wherever you're at, I want you to remember that you lived, that you, you really tried to live and you really tried your hardest. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but it's this opportunity that you're giving me. And I can't even, I can't think of anything other than that. I mean, that's beautiful. <laughs> Is that a thing that you've, you've found that you lose track of sometimes? I, I don't know if it's the pandemic. I just, I've, I've become very scared of misstepping. I've become very scared of, of falling back into an old me that didn't care. And I'm also intentionally trying to give myself a bit of a downtime for my artistic practice. And it's been really hard to unplug from the machine of the pro like continuous projection machine of grant writing and, uh, so I'm also like, like, what am I working on right now? Even well, I'm, I'm, I'm working on like keeping the house clean and I'm working on uh, exercising regularly and eating breakfast. Like I never used to eat breakfast, <laughs> health sleeping like through the night. And I'm so blessed to ha like have a, a, a roof over my head during this time and to have family close by. And yeah, I want to tell my future self that you, you really tried really hard to value what you have and to not, and to really work on not pushing, 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 pushing constantly. Because I think I became, I got, 
I got a lot of prominence as a dancer in Canada because I was pushing really hard and it hurt myself. I hurt myself a lot and I hurt others too. And I hurt others a lot too. And it's hard when you hurt so much, it's really hard to remember what good you've done. Mm. And it clouds that good that you've actually done in, in your, if not for the world, for certainly your memory of it. And I want to have the next 20 years, I want to be able to look back on the next 20 years and say, with, with an unclouded perception that I tried to do good. And I hope I live longer than another 20 years, but you know, at least. <laughs> That's a lovely sentiment. I really dig that. And it's sad that it took me this long to develop it. Like it's, uh, it's a shame. It really is a shame that I didn't wake up to the consequences of my actions earlier. <laughs> well, I suppose so. But, but in your, I mean, the way you described it so beautifully of, of needing to go somewhere else, if, if that's where your value lived. Yeah, but not by any means necessary. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I tried. I, I had this great passionate desire from a really young age to, to see this, the face of the sun and to see Andromeda with my own eyes. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, but I, I, it took me way too long to figure out that you need, there's ways of doing things right. There are ways of mm -hmm. doing things right. And uh, I was always really critical of, of protocol and procedure. Not that that's the answer, but, you know, I, I should have, I, uh, yeah, I was very cavalier growing up as a kid, mm. a male dancer in the, in, in the world and not to neglect other gender ideas. But when I was coming up as a dancer, as a male dancer, there was this value in having a penis and being virtue, quote unquote, virtuosic or raw or, and for me also exotic. I just ate that up. I did not question it. And I, you know, I really should have. <laughs> mm. Is this touching on the impassioned belief in oneself fueled by social media? Did you read my essay? Did I, did I send you my essay? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that's a bit different. That's me thinking about embodiment and disembodiment in this current, this massive tether we have to, um, to virtuality, especially through the way social media makes us continuously desire its use. I'm trying to think of choreographically to think of how it functions in the body as a function of passion and in passion. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that these phones and these virtuous virtual worlds that we have um, are, are, on a larger scope, trying to, trying to manipulate our expectations of what should, of, of impassionment, of how much also we should be impassioned in our lives in terms of frequency and quotient, that the body biologically or was not meant maybe to have so much continuous impassionment. I think we are losing our complicity with boredom and, and, and with boredom also comes questions. You know, that's where from that calm place that's where the other questions come maybe not i don't want to project saying deeper or richer blah 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 but other there are questions that come from the quiet state of nothing and when walking in nature when when lying on your floor with the lights off you don't even need to be in nature you just need to be in in the real quote unquote 
And I use that term very loosely. Like, what is real? What is real? What is real, Kunji? <laughs> I can't answer that question anymore. I don't know, Ben. <laughs> I really can't answer that question. What is real? Yeah. One of my favorite choreographic notes, ways of thinking is um, if everything is loud, then nothing is loud. Mm-hmm. And it really speaks to this idea is if everything is impassioned and, and present and, and happening, how much of that is present and happening? Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes back to your invitation for us to, to lay into this dream state of nothingness, mm-hmm. especially bookended with the dense, complex offerings within that we've sandwiched in this, in this time together. Yeah, we really, we really talked about a lot of stuff, eh? <laughs> yeah, zero to 100. Um, <laughs> bring it on, I guess. One of my last questions to you, what is the difference between dancing and living? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like, I, with my own trying to work on like, being accountable to the harm I've caused to the world, I find myself blaming this blur between living and dancing that I taught myself or used that as a sort of opiate to not think about the problems maybe that I would forgive myself Well, you're, you're dancing. Well, no, this is life. Uh, But it's also this division between real and fiction. It's also this division between accountability and in the inconsequential. As artists, I think, we we teach ourselves sometimes to meld our lives with our work Mm -hmm. and that is dangerous not not only it's not just dangerous for the obvious reasons that it will hurt you that you will exhaust yourself and you will blah 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 but it will also hurt the way in which you approach your work because if you can't live separately from your work you will take your work for granted or I would, or I did. And you'll end up also taking your life for granted too. (laughs) Wow. So when's your book coming out? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. When's the next dance? (laughs) Beautiful. Thanks, Kunji. Thanks for this conversation today. This is, I Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your time here, Ben. It's a, and your thoughts and for sharing with our our audience here you're so welcome kunji and i, I just realized you missed so many hand gestures audience you, you um we we, we we kunji and i were moving so much and i take for granted that you're not going to be able to see this but you missed a lot of suggestions <laughs> yeah, i mean two dancers in a room it's bound to happen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. That is our episode with Ben Camino. Uh, To check out more of Ben's work, you can visit Camino.xyz. That's K-A-M-I-N-O dot X-Y-Z. A big thank you to the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center, who help produce these podcasts. My name is Kunji Ikeda, and it has been an honor to host these ideas and these sessions and share them with you. If these ideas have resonated with you, please pass them on, because as the old adage goes, sharing is caring. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope to share some more thoughts with you soon with Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage. <laughs>